It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 230, The History of Rome and the Invention of the Republic. Around the time of the invention of the democracy in Athens, it's like something's going on in Europe, in in this Western world, Greece, um, and across, even in the Italian peninsula, uh, as we know it today, um, because this ideal of freedom, this ideal of self-governance, is taking hold in other states. Uh, it eventually will take hold in other city-states, but this one around the same time frame is the city of Rome. In Rome, something happens where um, they don't want a king anymore either. And with it, they have to find a form of government that works for them of self-governance. And they invent what's called the Republic. Um, and Brant Frost, just like he did in the last episode, he's going to catch us up a bit here. And uh, on the history of Rome up until now, we actually covered a little bit of this before um, with the uh, the birth of Isaiah, the prophet, as well as the founding of Rome episode. But he's going to kind of get us up to speed on um, how Rome becomes a republic and to kind of touch on the government um, as well, because Rome, of course, is going to be such a centerpiece during the time of Jesus. So without further ado, Brant Frost... History of Rome, Invention of the Republic. Rome, it is said, is the central event of human history. All the rivers of the ancient histories flow into Rome, and all the rivers of modern history flow out of Rome. America's founding fathers admired certain features of Roman law and government. They knew that, although the Romans may have lacked the cultural creativity of the Greeks, they succeeded where the Greeks had failed. They built an orderly society and maintained it in the West for 1,300 years, and in the East, for an additional 1,000 years. Let us first examine the origins of Rome. In the pagan cyclical view of history, Rome began as Troy's revenge on Greece. According to the Greek poet Homer in the Iliad, as Troy fell to the Greeks, one of the few Trojans who escaped was a heroic prince and warrior named Aeneas. Later, In another work, the Roman poet Virgil took up the figure of Aeneas, infused him with the old Roman virtues, and described his wanderings in the Mediterranean regions until he was eventually cast ashore near the North African city of Carthage. There he had a romance with the goddess Dido, Carthage's founder and queen. But Aeneas knew his duty lay elsewhere, so he reluctantly left Carthage and sailed to Italy. Hell hath no fury like a goddess scorn. This, in pagan mythology, explains the enmity between Carthage and Rome. 
Legend is unclear as to whether or not Dido was a goddess, a human queen, or a mixture of both. In Italy, Aeneas formed an alliance with the local king and married his daughter. He would go on to have a son who would be an ancestor to the famous twins Romulus and Remus. Each of the twins believed he was called to build a great city, and as they began their work, Remus mocked the walls of Romulus, so Romulus killed him. Thus was founded on April 21st, 753 B.C., the great city of Rome, that one day would avenge Troy by conquering Greece. Many are inclined to dismiss the story of the twins as legend, but some believe that Romulus was an actual historical figure. This, coupled with the testimony of Livy, Plutarch, and others, gives credence to the Aeneas-Romulus account. In either event, historians believe that Rome was founded between the year 750 and 800 B.C. It is fascinating to ponder the fact that if Remus had killed Romulus instead of the other way around, today we would be talking about the Reman Empire. Rome did not start out as a republic or a democracy. Indeed, for the first 200 years of its existence, it was a monarchy similar to the nations around it. It is difficult to separate fact from myth in this portion of Roman history, but historians generally agree on the founding of Rome, and Rome went through three distinct phases throughout its history, kingdom, republic, and empire. But certain institutions like the Senate and the class system seem to have existed almost from the very beginning. To begin with, the Roman kings, and I recommend Will Durant's excellent book, The Story of Civilization, Volume 3, giving some excellent commentary on uh, Roman society and the founding of Rome, and any one of Durant's uh, Stories of Civilization series is an excellent addition to anyone's library. Durant, among others, believed that for the first century of Rome's existence, the city was governed by the heads of the leading families, called the senators, spelled S-E-N-A-T-O-R-E-S. Same as we spell senators today, only with the E at the end taken off. Also, a high priest who would carry out many of the executive functions that a king would otherwise perform. According to the Roman historian Livy, who gives us more detail about ancient Rome than any other source, Rome had seven kings from its founding until the establishment of the Roman Republic. Romulus, the founder of Rome, and six other kings comprised the initial founding dynasty. Under these kings, Rome's power gradually expanded to include many of the surrounding portions of Italy, and the power of the monarchy expanded as well. These kings did not automatically take office by virtue of heredity. They were rather elected by the Senate, and their election was ratified by adult male citizens meeting in an assembly. However, once chosen, a king ruled with nearly absolute power, and the Senate served mainly to advise him. The kings held jurisdiction over military matters, administration of justice, and religious matters. When the king died, his powers reverted back to the Senate during the interregnum until a new king could be elected. The Roman classes are also very significant to any understanding of Roman history. One Roman historian has been quoted as saying, the greatest inequality is equality itself. The Hebrew concept of equality before God and before the law is totally foreign to Roman thought. From the beginning to the end, Rome was a class society. 
And class strife was a problem the Romans, for all their genius, were never able to resolve. The city was divided into four classes, patricians, who could trace their ancestry back to the founding families of Rome, who were very influential and powerful, and who commonly served as senators. The second class were the equestrians, or knights, who wielded considerable power because of their military prowess and personal wealth. Originally, during the days of the Roman kingdom, cavalry probably came from the patrician class, but starting around 400 BC, a separate class of cavalry arose. In the class struggles of Rome, the patrician and equestrian classes usually found themselves allied together against the lower classes and were commonly referred to as patricians. In the days of the empire, the equestrian class was divided into various subclasses and orders, some of which were open to non-Romans from the provinces. The third class was the plebeians, who were free but who had no real political power at first, although they gradually gained some over time. Plebeians were considered citizens, but they did not have the right to serve in the Senate. The distinction between patrician and plebeian was not based on wealth, but rather on ancestry. Generally, patricians were wealthier, but also some plebeians were very wealthy as well. During the days of the Republic, the rights and influence of the plebeian class gradually increased, even to the point where they had representation in the Senate in the persons of the tribunes. A plebeian could rise to equestrian status by being elected a tribune, being adopted by a patrician or an equestrian, or achieving a high military award. And finally, the fourth class were the slaves. Slaves were owned by others like property and who had no legal rights at all. Slavery was widespread throughout Rome, both in the Republic and the Empire. Except for Christians, no Roman is ever recorded as having spoken out against slavery as an institution, though some denounce the cruelty shown to some slaves. Some estimate that about 25% of the total population consisted of slaves. Others believe the slave population may have been as high as 33%, although this may vary at different times and different locations. Most slaves were acquired through warfare as captives. People could sell their own children into slavery, and creditors could often claim the debtor's children and make them slaves in payment of debt. Slaves were considered property by their owners, and thus they could be treated and disposed with as the owner desired. A runaway slave was considered to be guilty of theft because he had literally stolen himself from his master. However, the lives of slaves varied greatly, depending on the type of work they were assigned to do and depending upon the disposition of the master. Slaves assigned to the galleys as rowers, as portrayed in the great movie Ben-Hur starring Charlton Heston, or worse yet, to work in the mines, had the worst of the lot. Those who worked in households taking care of children and those assigned to work in their master's businesses or farm often experienced much better conditions. Some masters had genuine love and affection for their slaves and treated them almost as family. Others cared nothing for them and treated them as property, which under Roman law, they really were. Citizens and their families were divided into tribes, clans, and voting units, called the curie, and the citizens of each curie, or cura, cast their votes as a unit, not as individuals. All the unit votes were cast as the majority of the voters in the unit voted to cast them. Another name for this in modern times is called unit voting and was widely used in political party conventions 
well into the 1960s and in some cases beyond that. I recommend, if you want to read more on this subject, The Historical and Theological Foundations of Law by Colonel John Eidsmo. You can find those books online. They come in three volumes, and along with Will Durant's Story of Civilization are an excellent source for any Christian's library. I particularly recommend Colonel Eidsmo's uh, because there are three volumes instead of the more than 20 that Durant wrote, and also Durant was not a Christian. Roman religion is a key part to understanding the Roman Republic. Roman law and government cannot be separated from Roman culture, and at the heart of that culture was Roman religion. The goal of Roman religion was to properly align human affairs with the divine order, and this was done primarily through ritual, which to be effective must be performed in precise conformity to the traditions of the ancestors. About one day in four was set aside for rituals, because the Romans believed that the favor of the gods was essential to their future success and happiness. Neglect of these religious rituals was considered a form of atheism, and consequently, in the days of the empire, Christians were called atheists. There is an interesting passage from the martyrdom of Polycarp, translated by J.B. Lightfoot, that contains an interesting exchange between the aged Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, and the proconsul of Rome, in which the proconsul calls Christians atheists because they do not sacrifice to the gods. But Polycarp answers that the pagans are the real atheists. It says, When then he was brought before him, the proconsul asked whether he were the man. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to a denial, saying, Have respect to your age, and other things in accordance therein, as it is their habit to say, Swear by the genius of Caesar, and repent and say, Away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with solemn countenance, looked upon the whole multitude of lawless heathen that were in the stadium, and waved his hand to them, and groaning, looking up to heaven, said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath, and I will release thee, revile the Christ, Polycarp said, Eighty-six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then? Can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I'll wager not one Christian in a thousand has read the martyrdom of Polycarp. So I'm going to challenge you before this week is out, no matter when you're listening to this, within the next seven days of you listening to this, go and read the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's not a long read, and you'll be edified and encouraged by doing so. The Roman gods and those of the Greeks bore many similarities. The Greek Zeus became the Roman Jupiter, Zeus, the father, Jupiter, and his wife Hera became Juno. There were other members of the Roman pantheon, including Mars, the god of war, Janus, Neptune, and the underworld gods, such as Dias and Pluto. The Romans and the Greeks both perceived their gods as personifications of the forces of nature. Unlike the Judeo-Christian god of the Bible, The Roman gods felt the full gamut of human emotions, happiness, lust, anger, deceit, betrayal, pride, among others. The Bible speaks of God feeling jealousy, wrath, joy, grief, and other emotions. Theologians generally agree that these descriptions explain God in terms that humans can understand. Likewise, biblical descriptions of God as having human-like physical characteristics like the arm of God or the hand of God, 
are not to be taken literally. Describing God with physical attributes that humans can understand is a way of helping us to understand even faintly the true majesty of God and His nature. This does not mean that God has emotions or hands in the sense that people have them. A significant difference between Roman and Greek religion was that the Greeks thought that the divine and human spheres were separate and distinct, except when the gods chose to cross them. In Rome, they thought that the human and divine spheres were intimately connected. Roman religion was intensely more practical than the Greeks. The Greeks' gods lived, the Roman gods worked. Every god had a function, and every ritual was calculated to gain something from the gods. Romans believed that if they faithfully performed the various rituals prescribed, they would be blessed by the gods. Also, Roman religion in its early stages reflected the stern moral virtues of the old Romans. Cicero declared that, quote, gods are necessary to prevent chaos in society, end of quote. Roman religion was also closely involved with the state. Four colleges or councils of religious leaders called pontiffs, from whom the Roman Catholic Church would draw that title for the Holy Pontiff, the Pope, controlled religious practices. Pontiffs were usually chosen from among the political figures and held office for life, and the leader of this council was called Pontifex Maximus, a title which Julius Caesar would eventually usurp, leading to eventual emperor worship. The Romans also did not consider their gods to be exclusive to them. As Rome expanded, they allowed the conquered peoples to continue to worship their own gods, and the Romans would offer to incorporate these new gods into the Roman pantheon, perhaps to gain favor with these gods and also with the newly conquered peoples. In the days of the empire, the Roman state was considered divine, and the Roman emperor was also considered as a divine being, if elevated to divine status by vote of the Senate. In a certain sense, Rome was a very diverse, multicultural, and tolerant empire. One could worship the divinities of one's choice, provided he gave worship through the proper ritual to the Roman state and the Roman emperor. And here we see the basis for the Christian persecution. It was not that the Christians had a different god. It's that they believed that their god was superior to all other gods and above all humans, including the emperor and the senate. This was the essential battle between Christianity and statism, which continues around the world even to this day. Incorporation into the religious pantheon of Rome was accepted eagerly by most conquered peoples, but the Jews and the Christians refused to be incorporated for the reasons I have outlined just now. They believed God had commanded them not to worship any other gods or graven images or any man as if you were a god. They worshipped the God of the Bible and Him alone. The Jews, the Jews were not a substantial threat to the empire as they did not proselytize. So the Roman rulers generally granted them an exemption from the Roman religious requirements. But the Christians believed that God had commissioned them to evangelize the entire world, and therefore they faced significant persecution. Because of the eclectic nature of Roman religion, foreign religions found it easy to gain a toehold in the empire and even in the capital. As the gods of Rome continued to multiply through conquest, 
as the Greek philosophy gained influence and as the stern moral virtues of the old Romans and the Republic declined, many lost faith in the old Roman religion. And as the centuries progressed, the Egyptian worship of Isis and Osiris and, of course, Christianity, which in three centuries grew from a mustard seed to such strength that it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now we turn to the Roman Republic from 509 going forward. We won't have time to cover the whole Roman Republic, but we will have time to cover its early years. During the 500s BC, the Etruscan power in Italy declined, and in 510 to 509 BC, an alliance of aristocratic families organized by Lucius Brutus, an ancestor of the famous Brutus who led the assassination of Julius Caesar, drove the Etruscan king Tarquinus out of the city of Rome. The path was cleared for the establishment of the Roman Republic. Although historians disagree as to whether the Republic was established immediately and fully formed or whether it developed over a period of time. The constitution of the Republic, though unwritten, was very complex with separations of powers and many checks and balances. The emporium, that is, rule of the people, is a key concept of Roman law and government. In the early Republican view, the emporium rested in the people. As the Republic gave way to empire, the popular consent became a mere formality as the Senate would rubber stamp the commands of the emperor. In early medieval Europe, the concept of the imperium faded and kings claimed to govern on the basis of authority from the oaths they took of fealty from their vassals. As the modern concept of the state developed, the concept of the imperium would return. The imperium was exercised in a popular assembly that represented the people as a whole and was comprised of all free male citizens. The assembly elected senators and magistrates and voted on other matters, but they cast their votes as a political subunits as tribes, centuries, and cura rather than as individuals, as I've described earlier. Let's talk about the family. The family was the basic unit of Roman society and Roman government. Each family had their own gods to whom they gave worship, and each family had their own ancestral traditions. The father possessed the special power to rule over his family. He wielded virtual absolute power over his wife, his concubines, until this was prohibited by Constantine, that is concubinage, his children, and his servants. He could discipline them, he could sell them into slavery, he could even kill them until the time of Constantine. This included the power to expose unwanted or handicapped children in the wilderness to be killed by the elements or by predators. Christians strongly opposed this practice, and they increased their numbers greatly by rescuing these exposed children and raising them as Christians. Let's talk about Roman citizenship. Citizenship was an honored status enjoyed by only a few free male Romans. The rights of citizenship included the right to vote in the assembly, the right to be considered for public office, the right to make contracts and hold property, immunity for certain taxes, and exemption from torture. Indeed, you will recall in the book of Acts, where Paul is about to be tortured through a scourging in order to get information, he asked the men about to beat him, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? And they stopped right away, and they ran to get their superior officer. And both they and their officer were afraid of what he might do if he complained to the Roman uh, government because of how horrible a crime that would be to beat a Roman citizen and to torture him. 
that the value of citizenship in the Roman Empire was treated with great deal of respect, far higher than modern citizenship in countries is today. Another uh, case, you will recall, in the book of Acts, what actually isn't covered in the book of Acts, but we have it from church tradition, that Paul was beheaded. Why beheaded instead of crucified or some other horrible, torturous death? Well, he was a citizen of Rome, and a citizen could not be subjected to torture, including in execution. And a citizen was also exempted from the death penalty except for the case of treason, as well as the right and duty to serve in the Roman legions. Every male child born to a citizen was automatically a citizen. Others could purchase their citizenship at a high price, as the Roman officer in the book of Acts says to Paul that he had purchased his citizenship at a dear price, and Paul responds that he was a citizen from birth. And some citizenships were also granted for outstanding service to Rome. Under some extreme circumstances, a Roman could actually be stripped of his citizenship. Freed slaves would also have certain limited citizenship privileges, and their sons would eventually become full citizens. People from other parts of Italy who were allied to Rome were also given a limited form of citizenship called the Latin Rites, which eventually would lead to full citizenship. And while persons from other nations under Roman control had lesser status, Romans would often use various levels of citizenship as bargaining chips and forging alliances and bringing other peoples to the empire. Let's talk about the Senate. The Senate is one of the most famous of all Roman institutions. Through their popular assembly, the people of Rome, the citizens that is, elected their power, their imperium, to the Senate, delegating that power to those elected senators. Now, originally, senators were appointed and removed by the consuls, the high-ranking magistrates who led the army and the civil government. Later, they were elected by acclamation by the popular assembly. Over the centuries, the size of the Senate would vary from several hundred to over a thousand. Senators received no pay for their services, so generally only the wealthy were able to serve. During the days of the Republic, the Senate was Rome's primary governing body. And although it was theoretically accountable to the popular assembly, the Senate exercised the general civic power over finances, over domestic and foreign policy. During times of national emergency, the Senate had the authority to appoint a dictator who ruled with powers comparable to martial law, but whose term of office could last no longer than six months. And as we will see, this power to appoint a dictator was a factor leading to the downfall of the Republic and the rise of the Empire. I'm going to talk briefly now on the Roman virtues, the strength of the Republic. In the days of the Republic, particularly in its early years, Romans believed that their freedom depended on their adherence to virtue and the Roman beliefs, because only people who possessed self-discipline and virtue could be trusted with freedom. These virtues included spiritual authority, the sense of one's social standing built through experience, piety, and industry, a spirit of humor, an ease of manner, a courtesy and openness, a friendliness, a spirit of clemency and mercy, a spirit of dignity and self-worth, a spirit of firmness, tenacity, and strength of mind and perseverance. A spirit of frugality, simplicity of style, without being miserly. A spirit of gravity and responsibility. A spirit of respectability. A spirit of refinement. A spirit of industry and work ethic. A spirit of piety and respect for the gods. A spirit of prudence, foresight, wisdom, and personal discretion. A spirit of wholesomeness, health, and cleanliness. A spirit of sternness, gravity, and self-control and veritas, 
true, a spirit of truthfulness, honesty in dealing with others. All of these traits are considered today to be held in highest esteem. You will note that humility, however, is missing from this list. Romans, especially those who were blessed with wealth, were expected to support the common good generously. Wealthy patricians contributed large sums of money to build temples, columns and stadiums, and other worthwhile projects. In this way, Rome based its polity on a realistic view of human nature. Rather than trying to suppress the vice of pride, an effort was made to push it in the right direction toward admirable goals of helping to build great temples, columns, and arches with the names of those who had sponsored them. I'm going to close with a story from the founding of the Roman Republic. I'm going to tell you the story of the famous Horatius, whose name you may have heard of. He is a figure comparable to Paul Revere or Daniel Boone or some of the other heroes of the American War of Independence. He was an officer in the ancient Roman Republican army who famously defended the bridge against a whole army. And while his whole story may be partially myth and fiction, what is important to remember is that the Romans believed this story to be true. They believed that he was a man to be honored and emulated so that young Roman men would be raised on these stories, just as young American men for two centuries were raised on the stories of George Washington and his goodness and his honor and his characteristics that were to be emulated by young American men. During this campaign in the early days of the Republic, the commander of the Roman forces asked for volunteers to step forward and defend the bridge while he while he prepared a defense of the city. I'm going to be reading from Thomas Babington Macaulay's poem regarding this. It's an excellent poem, and I recommend it to you highly. But the consul's brow was sad, and the consul's speech was low, and darkly looked he at the wall, and darkly at the foe. Their van will be upon us before the bridge goes down, and if once may win the bridge, what hope to save the town? Then spake brave Horatius, captain of the gate. To every man upon this earth death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Wow. That's a guy you want in a foxhole with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Um, isn't Brant Frost great? I mean, it, he he's, does such a good job of um, rolling in history and actually where we're at today um, and studying it and pulling from famous quotes. Um, and, he, and he has so many book references and references to, uh, to what he's learning and studying with everyone and discussing. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to ask Brant Frost a question um, on the podcast that I've been asking him for some time. When are you going to start your own podcast, Brand? We're looking forward to it. I will be your first subscriber. And in the meantime, everyone check out the American Minute. 
Brant Frost's YouTube channel. And as always, thanks everyone for joining this episode. If you want to chat, email us at message to kings at gmail.com.